The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc. administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co. Inc. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode of our educational podcast series with this specific episode titled Adjuvant Therapies for High-Risk Non-Metastatic Kidney Cancer. It's really my pleasure to introduce my guest today, who's Dr. Rob Uzo. Dr. Uzo is a urological oncologist whose primary research has been in renal cell carcinoma, focusing a lot on clinical decision-making, surgical management, as well as adjuvant therapies. He's been a principal investigator or an investigator on a number of different trials that have really studied the impact of systemic therapies and correlating them or working them together with surgical management of kidney cancer. Um, Notably, he is also president and CEO of the Fox Chase Cancer Center. And uh, it's therefore our distinct pleasure that he would take some time out of what I'm sure is an extraordinarily busy schedule uh, to join us for this podcast today. So Rob, first of all, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking some time out of the busy schedule. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jay. Happy to be here. So maybe before we, we really sort of jump into the concept of adjuvant therapy for kidney cancer, maybe just give our, our listeners just a high-level overview of maybe what, we're, what are we going to be covering over the next 30 minutes, and, and that'll maybe give them a taste of uh, what we'll delve into in greater detail. Uh, sure. So um, I, I think for a long period of time, the concept of adjuvant therapy has resonated with physicians and patients. And really what the goal of adjuvant therapy is, as we all know, is to convert incompletely effective surgery um, to more effective, uh, with more effective systemic therapies to come out with a better result. So we all know that there are people that we clearly cure with surgery and surgery alone. And I'm not just talking about kidney, I'm talking across the spectrum of solid tumors. Um, But how do you bring the people who aren't cured with surgery alone a little bit better benefit? And so the idea here was to always try to combine um, surgery with uh, systemic therapy, usually after the fact, that's what adjuvant is as opposed to neoadjuvant, uh, to come out with a better outcome. And that outcome can be measured in any number of ways. That outcome can be disease-free survival, progression-free survival, overall survival. But the concept of adjuvant therapy has resonated with surgeons for long periods of time. And it's been used in most solid tumors, most notably breast, colon, melanoma, lung, bladder, prostate, and as well, kidney cancer. So I, I think you, you, for, our, for our listeners, first and foremost, I think you, you sort of underscored a, a key point, which is, you know, we're really looking at adjuvant therapy. So therapies that are delivered after surgical intervention, as, as you alluded to, and you sort of mentioned a variety of different uh, metrics to determine success of 
adjuvant therapies in general. And, and so maybe I'll just start it off and say, um, and I think you alluded to this a little bit, this, is, this podcast is about kidney cancer, but the concept of adjuvant therapy is not unique to kidney cancer. Is that, that's sort of a fair statement, right? That's true. Yeah, absolutely. So when we, when we look at um, adjuvant therapy for kidney cancer, maybe walk us through a little bit of the history. Obviously, you, you've been studying this disease for a very long amount of time, and, and this concept of, of adjuvant therapy is not new. Maybe the, the therapies and the agents are newer, but talk a little bit about it. Bring, bring us all up to speed on the evolution of adjuvant therapy, maybe dating back to when we first started using it for kidney cancer, and, and maybe that'll walk us up to some of the newer agents that we're using now. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that adjuvant therapy has always been a strategy recognizing, as I said before, that surgery will not cure everyone. And so some of the more fundamental questions in adjuvant therapy are, who isn't cured? And do we have an agent that might affect a better outcome? And so if you look at the most common uh, metrics that uh, clinical trials have tested uh, in the adjuvant setting, it's disease-free survival benefit and usually overall survival benefit. And if you take sort of, you know, the big picture view of what has adjuvant therapy done historically in the solid tumor setting, it's not been particularly uh, effective. Um, you know, usually DFS benefits are between 8 and 12 or 15 percent, depending upon what tumor type, what age you're talking about. And OS benefits, five-year OS survival improvements have been measured even less than that. You know, sometimes as little as 3 to 5 percent in overall survival. And frankly, most of the adjuvant trials um, in solid tumors uh, in the past haven't really even, you know, extended out to overall survival. Most of the primary endpoints were always DFS. And yet we recognize that we want to do something, right? It, the surgery is not enough for some of these people. So we continue to put forward these adjuvant trials in an attempt to try to improve uh, the, the, the results of, uh, of surgery for people likely to recur. So uh, I kind of divide this up in my own mind into the dark ages, the middle ages, and, and the modern age. Uh, and I don't mean, you know, to sort of make it too simplistic, but frankly, that reflects the effectiveness of systemic therapies over the course of the last three decades. So, for example, in kidney cancer, there really were not very many good systemic agents for kidney cancer 15 or 20 years ago, but that didn't stop us from trying. And so we used, we had a lot of trials in this space looking at, you know, um, hormonal agents and radiation agents and things like interferon and various permutations and timings and dosings of interferons, you know, and interleukins and sort of first generation immunotherapies. That's kind of the dark ages, I mean, there were many chemotherapies that were also used in that space. And frankly, nothing worked. And that's not surprising because frankly, they didn't work for metastatic disease. The idea there though, wasn't, um, you know, uh, wasn't a bad one. You know, perhaps if the tumor burden was less because all you were dealing with was micrometastatic disease and these things did show some ability to affect some change in some patients, maybe moving those rather poor or ineffective systemic therapies earlier may have benefited. But the answer is in the quote, dark ages of adjuvant therapies for kidney cancer, they didn't work. 
They didn't improve DFS. They didn't improve OS over survival, uh, over um, uh, placebo alone. And frankly, we did learn a lot about how to conduct these trials and how to select patients for these trials, but we didn't have much success. Then we moved into the Middle Ages, as I'll tell you. And the Middle Ages really were the, the age of the TKIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the TKIs really came out 2005, six ish, is when they really were sort of coming out in earnest. So, you know, serafinib, sunitinib, you know, pazopinib, exitinib. You know, there was uh, this G250 trial that came out, which was adjuvant to CA9 antibody. As you know, CA9 is overexpressed in clear cell carcinomas, adjuvant mTOR inhibitors like Everlimus. These trials really sort of, once again, most of them were placebo controlled. Most of them really sort of were much better at selecting patients by risk stratification. We can talk about that. And most of them, you know, uh, really measured DFS and OS. And frankly, almost all of them, you know, failed to show a benefit with the exception of, of one. And there were a couple of signals. So the one that was positive in the quote middle ages was the S-TRAC study, adjuvant sunitinib, it was about 600 patients, you know, it was sponsored by Pfizer, the makers at the time. You had to take the drug for one year. It was the highest uh, risk of patients that were uh, deemed to be fully resected. And, uh, you know, although it met a DFS survival benefit hazard ratio of about 0.76, you know, it failed to improve overall survival. But what it did say is that the asthma strategy is not dead in kidney cancer. And if you had more effective systemic therapies, then, of course, you know, um, you, know you, you might have at least some measurable benefit if you picked your patients right, if you gave the dosing right, and and, and if you um, sort of followed the patients long enough. So there was a signal there and maybe a signal in a couple of other studies, the PROTECT trial, which is adrenopazopinib, you know, I mean, depending on the dose, you know, and the, if you looked at the ITT or not, there was a little bit of a signal in the Everest trial, which is the adjuvant Everlimus trial, you know, again, you know, the, the eligibility was a little bit different, but, you know, narrowly missed the hazard ratio, you know, in the Everlimus trial. And so we started to really refine our ability to do these trials. We started to see some signals, although not particularly strong. It didn't really translate into clinical practice, although the FDA did approve sunitinib you know, in the adjuvant setting, but I think the uptake was rather low. And then, of course, the modern age, right? So the modern era is, um, you know, is the uh, adjuvant treatments for kidney cancer, you know, in the IO setting or the immunocology setting. So a number of trials here, you know, looking at various immunotherapies, PD-1 inhibitors, PDL one inhibitors, combination therapy, a combination of neoadjuvant and adjuvant, different durations, different dosing schedules, you know, and frankly here, you know, uh, we really started to refine the strategy, but more importantly, these were far more effective systemic therapies. And so we not only saw a, a signal, but increasingly as you follow these patients out, it's not, doesn't look like it's just a DFS signal. And I'm specifically referring here to Keynote 564, about 950 patients looking at adjuvant pembrolizumab for about 12 months, you know, versus placebo showing a DFS benefit. But a recent press release by Merck also suggests that there's an overall survival benefit. That's not yet been published, and I can't really give results because I don't know them. But apparently uh, that'll be coming out in in, uh, sort of data form at ASCO GU in February. Uh, So, um, uh, you know, a a, a lot of work done in the, you know, uh, and it's all iterative. It builds on itself. Uh, But I think that we're really seeing sort of the, 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 the culmination of decades of experience trying to refine these trials as well as uh, having better systemic options. So, Rob, talk a little bit about, and I think you alluded to this, which is, 
even in these trials that were perhaps maybe negative trials, or maybe those that showed a signal, but, but maybe not a statistically significant signal, you were starting to learn a little bit more. Obviously, the, the evolution and the landscape of the therapies we have altered and, and changed and improved. But, but I would also say that there was probably, um, and you alluded to this, a much better understanding of maybe risk stratification for these patients, which patients may be those that are at greatest risk, which ones may be those that you would actually see a signal. So maybe talk a little bit about when we look at, and this is kind of really in the wheelhouse of what urologists see, which is you see a patient, you do a partial or radical nephrectomy, and you're at that point starting to think a little bit about, is this patient appropriate for adjuvant therapy of any sort? And we'll talk more about some of those, especially the keynote trial. Um, what are some of the, the hallmarks of risk stratification? What should we be thinking about? And, and what is the impact when you look at trials of, of risk stratifying? Well, thank you. I mean, this has been an area of active interest and research of mine for some time. And I'm going to say that it really comes from a, a place where you're sitting in that clinic room with the patient and the patients just had surgery. And, you know, many of them have done very well. It's been robotic or laparoscopic and they're feeling pretty good. You got to give them the news, you know, and, and you really start to give them sort of something that's a little bit hard for them to understand initially because the news goes something like this. Right. So good news, uh, it looked as if your tumor was contained, the margins were negative, um, and, um, and, and uh, you know, although it was high grade, we think we got it all. Uh, and then they, they say, great, uh, and in their minds, that's where the story ends, but then you need to continue the story and you need to explain to them that there is a risk of recurrence. And then they ask you to quantify that. And we kind of get stuck there a little bit. You know, some of us do it quantitatively. Some of us do it qualitatively, you know, but it really sort of harkens back to this concept of micrometastatic disease, which, you know, isn't exactly intuitive until you explain it to a patient. Right. So, yes, it appeared to be uh, confined. Yes, the margins were negative. Yes. You know, it was high risk. But, you know, you know, what is the risk or the likelihood that this comes back, you know, is reflective on the idea of micrometastases. And, it, it, you know, while people can understand it, you need to explain it. And so it all sort of boils back basically to TNM staging, right? And that's how we usually risk stratify patients, right? What's your stage? What's your grade? What's your tumor type? Now you can translate that, as I say, quant qualitatively into high, medium, or low. And so then you recognize and you can sort of, if you like, say, well, you know, there's a medium or a low risk or a high risk chance that this tumor comes back in the next five years. And then, you know, some people, you know, will sort of stop there. Other people give it a number. But um, but but then you sort of think to yourself, OK, well, you know, um, there may be an opportunity because it's the first question the patient asks. There may be an opportunity for, for us to decrease that number. How might we decrease that number? And patients all ask us the same questions. What should we eat? What should we drink? But in actuality, we don't have any data to support lifestyle changes as part of decreasing the risk postoperatively. And so we start talking about adjuvant therapy. And so you, you, you start to explain to them, well, if, whether it's a clinical trial or an FDA-approved drug, that they might receive this medication, and that medication may or may not be a benefit to them. And it may, may or may not be a benefit to them because one, they may never need it because they don't have micrometastatic disease or two, if they do, it might not work in the setting of the micrometastatic disease. And so they're taking a risk, they're taking a chance when they take the therapy because they may it may result in them taking all the risk of the medication without any of the benefit of the medication, either because they didn't need it or because it didn't work. And so it's always been my interest and others to try to uh, refine that conversation, improve 
the knowledge and the eligibility so that you can really only offer the therapy to the highest risk patients. And so people have been doing this for a while. I think we're all familiar with the UISS, the uh, UCLA uh, system, which stratifies risk and localized kidney cancer. Memorial had a system. There's the sign score that was come, that came out of Mayo Clinic, the Leibovich index, which came out of, of, of Mayo Clinic and a bunch of others that we've published. But if you really actually look at those, they're marginally better than TNM because they include things like performance status or symptoms or age or the presence or absence of coagulative necrosis. But we're really just measuring sort of easily definable clinical characteristics. We're not yet able to measure circulating tumor cells mm -hmm. as the uh, as the ultimate arbiter as to, as to whether or not someone should or shouldn't get adjuvant therapy. So, you know, we, we sort of we sort of looked at all these things and we've published on all these things saying how accurate they are and they're marginally better than TNM alone, but they really aren't particularly, you know, uh, perfect. And you still do your best job at risk stratifying. And it kind of all boils down to, you know, where do you draw the line? The, you know, below this line, your risk is low enough to not take or not, not be considered for the trial or take the adjunct therapy above the line. It's probably worth that risk. We came up with this uh, nomogram called the Assure nomogram. It's available uh, uh, free online. You could just plug in the patient's information and it will spit out a Kappa-Meyer curve for what their risk estimates are for recurrence or overall survival based upon the assured data. So it's, it is the only risk calculator that lets you use prospectively collected clinical trials data. And, and if you do that, you know, it, it's really the basis of a much more informative conversation, at least in my experience, you know, when it's uh, when when you talk about should you take adjuvant therapy or should you go on to a clinical trial? No, that's great, Rob. And, and you know, I, I think data like that is so important because to, to your point, you can have this conversation in the office quantitatively or qualitatively. And, and the the giving some actuarial numbers or at least ballpark numbers that are predicated on trial data and so on, at least I think allows you to have a slightly more informed conversation, allows the patients to be slightly more informed about what is their risk of their disease recurring and then what may or may not be the benefit of, of adjuvant therapy. Do you think that, you know, and it's always an interesting thing, um, when we look at different urologic diseases, this is more of an editorial comment, look at different urological diseases, there is generally, despite there being fairly good guidelines, fairly good data, there seems to be, in many cases, an underutilization of some of these different modalities. So you take, for example, metastatic prostate cancer, patients should get germline testing to look for hereditary disease. We know that that occurs at a woefully low rate. You right. look at systemic therapy for prostate cancer, patients should get more than just Lupron or, or androgen deprivation therapy. They should receive combination therapy. The reality is that doesn't occur. Give us your sense, and maybe you know this data, maybe you don't, but give us the sense of when you look at the data and you have something that's FDA approved for adjuvant therapy for kidney cancer, is this actually being used in practice or is this yet another one of those um, tools that we have that we, we probably aren't utilizing to the extent that we should be? Well, you mean the the uh, are more people getting adjuvant therapy? Uh, uh, I guess the, are less it, getting it. Are, are, uh, are we not doing as good a job, even with good data, having appropriate patients get onto adjuvant therapy? Well, I, I would say that the answer to that is probably yes. We're we're, we're probably underutilizing it, particularly as the data emerge. And I, I think there's going to be a period in time, you know, where people just have to get used to sort of 
having the conversation about adjuvant therapy for the last two decades or three decades, it was all about putting someone on trial. And only in the relatively recent past have we got data to suggest that these, these medications work. Now you could argue about is DFS, you know, an appropriate endpoint or is OS the ultimate endpoint. And now, as I alluded to before with the emerging data, OS appears to be, be different with adjuvant pembrolizumab, but it's going to take a while for people to sort of, you know, you know, get that into sort of clinical practice. I think one of the first steps, though, is to sort of build a comfort with, you know, trying to quantify risk. I mean, yes, I understand not everybody sort of operates in this. And and, and honestly, when you're in the clinic, it, it becomes a little bit difficult to use all these calculators and tools to sort of communicate risk. But really, until people really understand and sort of can sort of in their mind, so to make the trade-offs. And it's been my experience that sort of helping someone make those trade-offs is an important step for them accepting, you know, uh, the, the possibility of adjuvant therapy. Until they do that, I, I think it's going to continue to probably be underutilized. So let me give you an example. A, a person with a T2 grade 4 sarcomatoid tumor, you know, that's uh, been fully resected, um, and, you know, nodes appear normal and there's no metastatic disease, that person has a relatively high risk of, uh, of recurrence over the course of the next five years, might be, you know, uh, 30, 40% plus, you know, uh, particularly with sarcomatoid. And sarcomatoid sort of seems to be one of those features where adjuvant therapy, I think most people agree, if anybody's going to benefit from it, it's the people with sarcomatoid mm -hmm. disease. So, you know, if, if you tell patients, you know, you've got a high risk of recurrence, they're likely to go see a medical oncologist. You know, if, uh, if however, you, you sort of take a person with a 30% risk of, 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 of metastatic disease recurrence, you know, um, it's a little bit harder of a cell and probably it should be. So you've got to give them that nuance about where, you know, where their risk stands for them to internalize and, and, and sort of, you know, be willing to accept the risks. Now, um, I think that uh, to your to your point, Jay, um, you know, most of the time we just it's easier just send to medical oncologists, let them let them sort of make, communicate that risk. And perfectly, that's perfectly fine if that's sort of, you know, how you run your practice. Uh, but I think that, you know, you should at least know where the lines are getting are getting drawn. And I think if I was to give you one message about where the adjuvant kidney cancer line is getting drawn, and if I was to give you sort of, you know, what that looks like, it's. T2 high grade disease or worse. Now there's some nuance there, right? So you say, well, T3 is higher than T2. Should I send all my T3s to, to medical oncology? You certainly could, but I don't know that the, the data are as robust for like a T3A invading the fat low grade, right? That, that So there's a little bit nuance. A TNM sort of falls apart a little bit, but if I was going to give you sort of a hard line as to where to start thinking about that referral, it's T2 high grade or worse. Does that, does that help? Yeah, no, no. I think, uh, I mean, I think it gives at least a barometer of, of you know, when when should the uh, the proverbial when should the spidey sense be tingling a little bit that hey, you know, th this is a higher risk, this is a a potential worse acting tumor. So you talked a little bit about uh, the keto trial. You you've alluded to several times to pembrolizumab. Talk a little bit about maybe a, a little bit more in detail on what was the cohort that got treated in that trial. And then obviously you have been part of multiple different adjuvant trials. So maybe give a sense of, um, was this a positive study because we now have the IO agents and, and maybe now we have the right agent? Or are there other elements of this trial that we've now learned from historical that allows us to more appropriately select? And now are we potentially on the horizon of 
more positive trials because we know the right patients and we have better therapies. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's probably both those things, Jay. I think we are picking higher risk patients for these trials. And I think we're getting a signal because the agents are more effective. So as I was saying before, in terms of Keynote 564, T2 high grade and or with sarcomatoid differentiation, T3 or higher, no positive uh, is included. And even patients with M1 disease who've been rendered NED, uh, say, for example, you know, you, uh, you do a metastasectomy two or three years after the primary tumor was removed, all those patients were considered in the Keynote 564 cohort. And so when you look at that, you say, well, you know, even though we can't measure circulating tumor cells, by and large, if you looked at the data, that all is like 35% or higher of those people would have a uh, recurrence risk. So one, one out of every three of those people or worse, and in the, in the uh, setting of um, resective metastasis, certainly worse. So, so we're picking the higher risk patients. Now compare that to, if you will, you know, the uh, S-TREC trial, which is one of the earlier, I called it the middle age trial. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was positive trial, but we looked at T1B, you mm -hmm. know, uh, patients. So we've basically eliminated, you know, any T1 patient, we've eliminated any really low risk, low grade patient. And we've really started to really unify the eligibility into a much more high risk cohort. So that's the first point. The second point is, uh, yeah, these drugs are far more effective. We know they work in the metastatic disease. We know the overall response rate for patients with metastatic disease is, you know, in the 50 to 60 plus percent, uh, percent range. So why wouldn't it work? Now, the argument has always been maybe what you're doing, maybe you're just suppressing the tumor long enough that your scans don't become positive yeah. so that you see a disease-free survival benefit. That is, the scans stay long, uh, stay negative longer, but it doesn't affect uh, overall survival. That is, you're not living longer, but your scans look better for longer. And the price you pay for better-looking scans is the risks of pembrolizumab for a year. That's been one of the criticisms in the past. Now, with this overall survival data tease that they've given us, you know, that, 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 that calculation may very well change. So um, real, real practical questions here. So you're, you're a urologic surgeon, you, you did a nephrectomy or partial nephrectomy, you've identified um, somebody that, that is meeting these high risk criteria, which you, you've so nicely alluded to. So two real practical questions. Number one is when, when what is the appropriate time to consider starting um, adjuvant therapy? For example, now with pembrolizumab, and then the second related, which I, I think that even if you pass them on to medical oncology, the reality is these are your patients as well. You know, you started the journey with them, you operated on them, you are going to be part of their care mechanism. They're going to reach out to your office, even if they're receiving perhaps systemic therapy from the medical oncology team. So maybe um, your idea on when should the therapy start and what should urologists be aware of with regard to side effects of therapy um, when patients are on this? I think those are both great questions. So just so that uh, everybody is aware, you know, the way the trials were written, and I, as you've said, I've been very, um, you know, very involved with these trials for long periods of time. We really didn't know when to start it or for how long to give the therapy. So I'm going to be very honest with you. We did our best in estimating what those times and doses and lengths of time should be. And what we sort of landed on is 
it should be given within the first 12 weeks of surgery. So three months within 12, three months of surgery, and it should be given for a year. Now, some trials have looked at a little bit shorter time, but most of them give you therapy for one year. And, and you know, while there may be some preclinical and other reasons and rationales that we can come up with for why that made the most sense at the time, that's what it, that's what the trials were based on. So I think the take home message here is, um, most patients for adjuvant therapy have a reasonable amount of time before they need to commit to it. Um, and, and that time is 12 weeks or three months. Frankly, most patients should not be getting adjuvant therapy within the first two or three or four weeks after therapy, because as you alluded to in the second uh, part of the question, was that there are a lot of overlapping symptoms. That is, we know that patients that take immunotherapies can have a lot of um, autoimmune symptoms, and some of those autoimmune symptoms may overlap with some of the symptoms that people have in the perioperative period. So, for example, right, somebody... Um, uh, treated with uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab may get diarrhea. Well, so too may somebody post-op may get C. diff uh, or somebody with, treated with adjuvant pembrolizumab may get pneumonitis. Well, so too can they develop a PE or pneumonia, right? Um, and, and, and I can go on and on, but um, I think that there is some risk in giving adjuvant therapy too early before the patient is truly recovered. So, I, I mean, I have not had a patient start adjuvant therapy much before six weeks after um, their, their uh, surgery, not because they weren't fit or well enough, but it, sometimes obviously it just takes time to get people through the system. Uh, but I think that's probably a pretty good practice, somewhere between six and 12 weeks. Uh, once you get past 12 weeks, it's not necessarily that you can't get adjuvant therapy. It's a question as to whether or not you should call it adjuvant therapy, because at that point, you probably need to rescan and make sure they haven't had an early recurrence if they're at very high risk. So you've alluded to, and I'm going to ask you sort of the, the you know, what's in the future type question. And you've, you've alluded to it several times, which is that even now our, our decision-making for selecting patients for adjuvant therapy is fair, but, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not as refined as I think it could be, right? We use TNM, maybe we add some variables to it. You, you said very nicely the different systems. But if you think about the urothelial uh, world, you know, they're starting to incorporate more circulating tumor DNA into the decision-making process, not only of who may most benefit from therapy, but also even perhaps the duration of therapy if you look at the CT DNA. Your thoughts on, is this principle and concept, are we going to have more refined abilities to look at things other than just TNM, maybe blood-based markers for selection of patients? Well, that's a great question. I mean, it hasn't yet borne fruit fully uh, in kidney cancer, uh, like it's starting to in, say, colon cancer. But this whole concept of minimal residual disease, this measurement they call MRD, right? You know, and, and that will be ultimately, I think, a far better arbiter as to who may benefit from uh, from uh, from adjuvant therapies. And of course, that requires us to sort of be able to sort of detect the signal with a serum-based blood test. Um, and, and, and while we're not there yet for kidney cancer, I think we're getting much closer, certainly with, with bladder cancer, urothelial carcinoma, and even closer still yet uh, with, um, uh, with colon cancer. Very nice study published recently in that space that showed that, you know, not only can you demonstrate that you've uh, improved the outcome of people with uh, with uh, circulating tumor DNA, but also that you've avoided uh, over-treatment in people without it, and that the outcomes weren't worse. 
Um, so while we're not there yet, I, I, I suspect that we're not too far away. That's great. Well, Rob, I, I, I want to really thank you uh, so much, uh, obviously, for your time today. Uh, on a personal note, I would say uh, there, there are not many urologists that have ascended to the level of being a president and a CEO of the health system. I'm personally very grateful, as is the AUA. You always seem to make time for educational endeavors for the Office of Education, whether that's, I know you come every year to give the annual review course to the residents. Uh, you, you sort of volunteered why I reached out to you to do this podcast without hesitation. So on a personal note, really appreciate with obviously your ever expanding roles uh, that you take time to help out the organization and, and obviously help educate our membership. Well, thank you. And, and if, if people have made it this far in, the, in this uh, podcast, I'm going to leave them with sort of, as, as I will sort of give you adjuvant therapy for clear cell kidney cancer in black and white. And, and, and I would say the following, you know, I don't think there's a current role for adjuvant therapy in high grade T1. I don't think there's a current role for high grade uh, for, for adjuvant therapy in high grade T3A involving the perinephric fat. If it's involving the vasculature, or a different question, or even, you know, uh, for sure, high grade non-sarcomatoid T2. I think that really where it gets uh, to be uh, something where the real benefit exists. It's in sarcomatoid tumors, in T4 tumors, in N1 tumors, in sarcomatoid T2s, and anything that's high-grade T3B or T3C. I think that's real. And, and then there's a couple things in the middle where it's just going to be up to the patient to sort of start to make that, you know, that, that trade-off. So I hope that really is a, a, is a practical you know, a uh, guideline for people that are practicing and, and they can take that uh, forward into their clinics for the benefit of patients. So thank you very much to you and to the AUA as always. You guys have done a great job in sort of leading this organization and, and really sort of increasing the offerings uh, for learning. Thank you. Great. Well, to our listeners, we thank you very much for your uh, time and your attention. Uh, Rob, to you and your family, a very happy holiday and to our listeners as well. I look forward to hopefully seeing you sometime soon in person. Thank you, Jay. I look forward to that too. Bye-bye.